Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello, it's Craig Gilbert here, Amplified Producer at Nottingham Playhouse, bringing you another conversation from my makeshift bedroom studio. Today, I'm joined by the brilliant theatre director, Maria Aberg. Uh, Maria has directed plays at some of the most renowned theatres in the country. She's directed The Duchess of Malfi for the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, uh, The White Devil for the Royal Shakespeare Company, Much Ado About Nothing at the Royal Exchange Theatre, uh, The Fantastic Mr Fox for the Nuffield and Lyric Hammersmith, and The Little Shop of Horrors at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. As well as her work in the UK, Maria also works internationally. She's directed Fanny and Alexander for the Malmö Staatstheater in Sweden, Franz Kafka's America Staatstheater in Mainz, and Love and Money also at the Malmö Staatstheater in Sweden. I had a lovely conversation with Maria, who's currently uh, isolating with her family up in Stratford-upon-Avon. Uh, so I really hope you enjoy our chat, and I'll be back soon. Thank you very much. Hello, Maria. Thank you so much for joining us on the uh, Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. How are you doing today? Yes, I'm good. Hi, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Going a little bit stir crazy in the bedroom, but it's excellent to have lovely people like yourself to talk to. What does um, what does uh, social distancing look like for you at the moment? What have you been up to? I um, I was in rehearsals up in Stratford upon Avon uh, for my new show at the RSC when uh, when the theatres got closed down. So I'm still here actually, um, just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen next. Um, and that's both a little bit odd and kind of wonderful. I've got my whole family with me, so we've sort of taken to spending quite a lot of time in the countryside, far away from other people, um, and just kind of, uh, yeah, watching lots and lots of YouTube tutorials of various things. <laughs> Excellent. What, what are you learning? Well, it's mostly sort of kids-related, so there's a lot of craft things, lots of things that you can do with sticky tape and, uh, you know, various household items, that yeah. kind of thing. So you... You're going to be an origami expert by the time all this finishes. Wouldn't that be amazing? That, how yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so were your family already in Stratford with you or did they just did they hop on a train and come straight up as soon as this all happened? No, we were all here from the beginning. So we've been here since the end of January. Oh, well, that's well, that's handy, at least. And what a lovely pl- place to be uh, to be trapped. If you're going to be anywhere, it's uh, lovely up in the Cotswolds there. Um so um, where are you Where are you from, Maria? Where did you grow up? Uh, I'm from Sweden. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the countryside in the south of Sweden, um, just outside Malmö. Um, and I came to England in 1999 to go to drama school. And this kind of ended up staying more or less since then. What do your What do your folks do? Is there Is there theatre or art in your family, or are you the, uh, the first? I know I'm the black sheep, uh, as it. Oh, well. yeah, no, I'm the only one <laughs> so far. Which <laughs> um, is uh, yeah, it's very strange. So so it didn't really come from uh, a, a kind of family background or a family interest, really, even. Um, but I had a best friend when I was uh, when I was about eight or ten or something and her mum was in the uh in the ensemble at the at the theater in in Malmo so we used to go and and hang out there and see her in shows and and just kind of generally rattle around backstage and we must have been really really annoying but it was um it was kind of magical actually and I sort of fell in love with the theater I think via uh uh, via my best friend's mum 
Uh, and and so just for those people that uh, don't know, by being in the ensemble, you mean she was an actor there full time, all the time. And exactly. Didn't yeah. really work anywhere. Else. Exactly. Yeah. Well, they, uh, had, so, they have a permanent ensemble of actors there, and that was her sort of regular nine to five job, as it were. And uh, so, how old are you when you're uh, you're rattling around backstage at this theatre? Probably about ten, nine, something. Great. And you, and you are you are you seeing the shows as well? You see some see of them, work. you know, the ones that I could see, the the sort of appropriate ones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you do you remember do you remember anything from that time that you saw that you thought was particularly magical? I remember seeing a musical, um, which was about a sort of Swedish. I think it, I not. I haven't really heard anything about it for a very long time or read anything about it, but I think it's based on a true story, and it was a sort of. A uh, really tragic uh, uh, story of a girl who joins the circus and then I think ends up committing suicide or something. It sounds not doesn't sound very child appropriate, but I remember being just completely swept away by it. Um, uh, yeah, it was very sort of very sad and very kind of grand and beautiful. Do you remember the uh, the moment where you decided that yeah, this is the thing I'm going to do. This is the thing I'm going to pursue and try and make my living doing. Well, it's interesting because I think like falling in love with theatre was one thing and then deciding that directing was probably the thing that I should be doing was a sort of later step, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess the falling in love with theatre was really around then. Um, uh, and especially in that theatre, you know, I had I had some some good experiences there when I was a child and, and a young person. And I've been back to do some shows there since, which has been really magical. Um uh, but deciding to be a director came a bit later. I suppose I was, uh, I was about eighteen or something, and I, you know, like most other people, I had set off to be an actor, uh, and through acting, discovered that there was this other thing that you could do, um, that eventually became much more appealing to me. And so, uh, what you were were you acting in like youth theatre productions and things as as a teenager, that sort of stuff? A little bit, yeah. And I did uh, what is the Swedish equivalent of A levels uh, um, with a sort of drama focus. So we did lots and lots of drama um, at school or at college at the time. Um, and I think it was doing that 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 made me realise that directing was uh, was just more appealing to me. I remember we were working on a on a little scene from. Um, the seagull, me and uh, and two classmates, and we used to take turns directing because it was really an acting, uh, sort of an acting course. And I, it was my turn to direct, and uh, and it was a scene between Nina and Trigorin, and and I suddenly just kind of realised that this was I could sort of hear it, you know, and I could sort of see what uh, what what would make the scene work, and. Um, and I obviously had no idea how to make it happen and must have been the most terrible director. But but there was something about that that, that sort of made it click for me. Uh, and so what is it that uh, prompted you to uh, come to Britain to study? Well, when you live in the south of Sweden, there, there's sort of really only two places that you can go uh, to study directing, which is you could either go to Stockholm that has the, or at the time had the only directing uh, training uh, on university level um, or you could go abroad uh, and the options then were either going to Denmark which didn't seem so appealing to me because it just wasn't quite far enough away <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, or you could go to Germany and that made me anxious because my German was okay but not quite up to scratch or you could go to England uh, and so I thought well I just try that and then uh, yeah I ended up staying. 
Brilliant. And where did you go? Where did you train? I went to Mountview in the, I think, first or second year of, of, of their directing course. So it was very new when I went there. And how was how was that? Was it was it a good time for you? It was a great time. It was very um, it was a very practical course. So we spent a lot of time not not all the time, but but I would say the majority of time, sort of shadowing uh, other uh, other students on their modules. So we did you know we we took part in the acting course. We took part in the in the technical theatre course. I think. Um, and then we got to do a couple of small productions and it was very useful it was very useful and uh, I've been asking people who talk to me on this podcast if uh, so there are people out there who are either early career directors or thinking of becoming uh, becoming directors if there are any from that early stage of your training and career if there are any resources or books that were particularly important to you that uh, people might be able to enjoy while social distancing Oh, that's interesting. I the the book that I do think is brilliant that wasn't around <laughs> that wasn't around in nineteen ninety nine because that's how old I am was um uh, uh Katie Mitchell's book on directing which I think is is really a, a wonderful resource because it goes into such detail um and obviously it's about a very particular kind of way of working but I guess what it does is, is that it gives you a real sense of uh, the sort of rigor that I think it should be your ambition to apply to your work and whether or not you do it in the way that she does it or whether you find your own way to do it. But there's something, I found it very inspiring, um, the kind of, the sort of geekery of it. (laughs) (laughs) Really going into like every single little detail and working out exactly what you want from it and what you believe and, you know, that kind of thing. I I, I really enjoyed. So I would say that. Uh, Excellent stuff. And so, uh, and then you you come out of, Mount View, and what uh, what are the first steps in your life of becoming a professional director? What's that uh, that early work that probably that doesn't get mentioned on your CV? Did you do some? Did you do some assisting? Were you were you yes, making work I did. on the fringe? I, I did, which was uh, I was incredibly fortunate to do. Which is, I I started working as a reader, and it, it wasn't something that I knew existed really until um I heard someone else mention something about it and I spotted that the Royal Court was having a a, a season of Scandinavian work in the theatre upstairs and so I thought oh this is maybe my chance I can write to them and say that I can be a reader in case they need someone to read in original language so I did and 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 they actually asked me to do some reading for them uh, and then I thought oh maybe I should do a bit more of this so I wrote to Graham Wybrow, who was the literary um, di- um, uh, literary manager at the uh, Royal Court at the time, uh, and said, uh, "and said, could I do some reading for you?" And I and I wrote him a sort of <laughs> wildly arrogant two page essay on what I thought was wrong with British theatre and what I thought needed changing, and uh, and just um, uh, just kind of gave him gave him sort of my uh, my lowdown on the on the state of. Uh, state of state of the world and uh that's brilliant do you do you remember any of the points that you made oh god uh, no and... i stand for cringe to think what i must have written <laughs> <laughs> um but um, i but i but either way impressed the guys at the royal court and then you well uh, I mean, I think graham just thought okay so she's got some opinions let's see let's see if she can do some reading so he got me in to do some reading at the time um 
the literary department at the Royal Court, I don't know if it's still the same, but it was really only the literary manager and an assistant. And at the time, that assistant was Joe, was Joe Hill Gibbons. Um, and so I started reading for Graham. And after a little while, Joe, uh, I think, won the Jerwood Award uh, and left to go off and do directing. His career kind of took off. And then there I was. And Graham said, do you want to come and work for me? And so, you know, without really even knowing that that was a job, I was suddenly working at the Royal Court and it was the most brilliant two or three years of my life because I learned basically everything I know about plays and about structure and obviously about new writing, but also about style and about um, uh, how to analyse the script. I didn't really, I didn't really know, you know, I, I, maybe I had an instinct, but, but Graham sort of gave me all the tools I, I, I still use to uh to deal with text and eventually then I also started assisting there and then starting assisting at the national uh, uh and and uh, ended up at the RSC so that's kind of that's kind of how it went really brilliant and uh can you talk a little bit about some of those tools that you use when analyzing a text oh. so Graham was very um he had a kind of model for how to write a script report. And these are script reports that we didn't share with the writers. They were, they were the ones that were kept in the, in the World Court Literary Office on file. And one of the things that he asked was that the first sentence had to describe exactly what the play was and that specific play only. So, so you, it couldn't be in any sense generic and it had to, it had to, you had to contain it in one sentence. So it really sort of trained you to analyze exactly what what was the kind of really individual uh, uh, characteristics of that piece of text, um, and then sort of break it down. Um, and I guess in terms of tools, I mean, I you know, of course, now I do it so instinctively when I pick up a piece of text and start thinking about directing it that it's hard to break it down into into kind of into specific things I think I think the thing that I do now that I, I wouldn't have had the courage I guess to do when I was younger uh, or or skills even is that I try to find my theme as a director in a text and once I have identified what that is to find all the possible ways in which I can support that and uh, and and kind of uh, bring that out and everything else, all all other decisions concerning the text and largely the production, are then based around uh, uh, that that theme and making that theme as kind of vivid and and complex and interesting as possible. Can you uh, can you articulate what that might mean in practice? So uh, give give us an example from something you worked on. I guess a really, I mean, a really kind of mundane starting point would be taking out the script, reading it. I mean, especially if you're reading something like a classic or or even a slightly obscure classic that you mightn't have read before. That it, that to someone who doesn't have English as a first language can can feel quite daunting and and can be quite impenetrable on a first on a first or even second read. Um, is to just sit down and like like circle all the words that seem interesting to you or all the lines that sort of ring out. Because I think if you are connected to the world uh, uh, in some way and have, um, I guess, 
convictions and beliefs and interests, then I think they're always there under the surface. And I think it's just kind of letting letting that influence um, how you make work. So yeah, basically just going through the text and highlighting things that seem interesting to you and then looking back over that and seeing if there's a kind of common denominator or a red thread that, that ties that all together. And inevitably, after you've done that a few times, there will be. And then you kind of know you know, where where the heart of the play is for you. Great. Um, that's really clear. And I love the uh, love the idea of the red thread. That's, uh, that's a, a brilliant image to cling on to. Uh, and so uh, after you've uh, done your reading and you've been assisting for a while, how did you uh, make the leap from being an assistant to making your first uh, work as a professional director? Well, I was actually still an assistant while I, when I did my first show, literally actually still in rehearsal, weirdly, when I did my first show, <laughs> um, uh, which was a, a, a production of a German play called Stallerhof at the Southern Playhouse, and this was in 2006. Um, and I, I mean, I, I you know maxed out a credit card and borrowed some money <laughs> that's really not a very it's not a very sensible way to to produce work I don't think um and I and I really very generously got got a small grant from the young Vic um to put that show on and it, it just so happened that it went very well and I managed to recover my costs um and whilst I was uh, whilst that show was running, I was also assisting Dominic Cook on The Crucible, which was an RSC production that uh, later went into the West End. Um, and while he was working on that show, he uh, uh, was appointed the new artistic director of the Royal Court. And uh, one of the shows that he'd lined up for later on in the year, uh, uh, which was a, a new play by Roy Williams, uh, uh, he wasn't able to do it because of this new job, so he asked me to do it. So, so it it turned out that the the the, the kind of the first proper directing job that I ever had, or the first proper direct offer of a directing job, was to do a show in the Swan, which is brilliant and absolutely terrifying. Um, yeah, I can I, I I can imagine there's there's quite the difference between uh, sort of playhouse and directing a play in the Swan. So just to, uh, just to unpick something you said previously. You said you were assisting while you were while making your first show. What what does what does that mean? You were rehearsing your show in the evening, but in the professional rehearsal room during the day, or what was the? No, how, how was that? There, was, there was an overlap. I think of about I think. I think my previews overlap with our first week of rehearsals or something. Um, oh right, for the Crucible. Uh, so I was I was kind of finishing rehearsals and then running off and uh, you know giving notes to the actors before the shows in the evening. And um, what do you remember of that first experience of doing? Was it Days of Significance the play in the in, in this one? The one it was. Yeah, it was, I mean, I once I'd stopped being terrified, which took a good few weeks. It was absolutely brilliant. It's one of the shows still that I am the most proud of in my whole career. Um, so we did it once in the Swan and then uh, got the opportunity to do it once again a year later um, at the Tricycle. Um, and so we reworked, me and Roy, some of the, some of the sections um, and, uh, and were able to bring some of the cast, but not all of them, with us to the next production. Did it again at the Tricycle and then went on a national tour later that year. And it is... Um, yeah, it was a very, very special experience. I'm, I'm really proud of it. Um, and can you uh, talk a bit 
a little bit about um, making work internationally, because um, obviously you have the relationship um, with the with the theatre in Malmo that you mentioned earlier. But mm-hmm. uh, you work in Germany as well at the uh, Staatstheater in Mainz. Have you have you worked anywhere else, or is it uh, just a relationship you have with that theatre? Exactly. And, uh, no, it was the relationship I had with that theatre about ten years ago, um, and I have worked in other places in Sweden as well. Um, um but um yeah it's very interesting i i you know the first time i did a show outside of the uk was quite daunting because i realized that my entire professional language um uh, was in english so i didn't i kind of lacked the vocabulary in swedish that i needed to to make work which is kind of um uh, quite a, quite a kind of disconcerting discovery um um, but it's um, it's it's great. It's very interesting to compare the differences. But I always say that you know, I think by and large actors are the same in most countries, and obviously there's a difference of uh, uh, aesthetic, and I think there's a difference in largely how the actors view their relationship with the audience. But uh, you know, theatre is theatre. Brilliant. I, I, I wonder if you can uh, tell me a little bit about that, how the, how the actors uh, view their relationship with the audience and how, how perhaps it differs in different countries that you've worked in. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's quite it's nearly impossible to have a conversation like this without generalising, but um, if, if I can generalise for a minute, I think uh, British audiences they see um, they see the character as their way of communicating with the audience. Um, so they create something that is entirely that sits entirely outside of themselves and they use that uh, creation to communicate with the audience. Whereas I think, in Germany, for example, and I think Sweden probably sits somewhere in between, but maybe closer to Germany. In Germany, the the character, or whatever you want to call it, is a is is a is a, a sort of very thin film between the actor and the audience. I think in Germany, the communication between the actor and the audience is much more direct and immediate. Um, uh, and I don't think the character is a construct behind which the actor can disappear or hide in the same way that I think is um, uh, I think is common here. Yeah, I mean, um, if you allow me to generalise for a moment, I think when I when I watch uh, theatre in Germany, there is never any doubt that we're all in the same room at the same time, uh, and that isn't necessarily the case. I'd say with the majority of the theatre we see here, yeah. uh, there's very much yeah, very much a, a separation of those worlds. Uh, and I'm I'm not by I'm not making a value judgment there, but that seems to me a, a very like, the actors let you know that they know you're there, if that makes sense, in yeah, Germany. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, that you can do things uh, aesthetically different, uh, differently working internationally. And I just wonder if you can uh, um, unpick what you mean uh, mean by that. I suppose I mean, it ties into the same conversation, really. I guess the audience, uh, uh, you know, various audiences expect different things. And I suppose I find that outside of the UK, audiences by and large don't expect naturalism or, or, you know, an imitation of real life. And that just means you can go, I mean, you 
can go for you can go as far as you like in this country of course you can but i think uh there's a possibly sometimes a resistance both from the audience but also you know from uh from your creative collaborators to go entirely into a world of metaphor or theme um yeah and is that is that something you uh that's very definitely at the forefront of your mind when you're planning a production uh for here and for for somewhere else is that uh, is that something that you bear in mind the uh that relationship to the audience and what is um viable how far you can take things no I mean, obviously obviously with the caveat that you can of course take things as far as you like here here as well but it isn't uh uh as de rigueur I don't think I mean I I I hope I don't make a different kind of show here than I do anywhere else I hope I make the same kind of show um I guess what I'm talking about is a sort of general phenomenon in the theatrical culture I I don't try and um, uh, adapt or make make productions for either audience more palatable to them uh, um, I don't think that's I don't think that's a, a sensible way to make art I think you have to make the thing you want to make in the way you want to make it and then the people will come <laughs> <laughs> uh, as Kevin Costner would have it if you build it they will come exactly yeah um i wonder then if we uh if we can talk a little bit about your process of making the show obviously we uh begun to delve into that with your conversation about initial analysis of a text and the red thread um but where does it where does it go after the red thread and in particular i'd be really keen to talk about uh your work with designers and what that process looks like or what that process looks like when it's really working mm, okay like with like of course with any any project it really it varies you know the project that I've just been in rehearsal for uh, which is an adaptation of a Czech novel called Europeana um I worked in a way that I've never worked before um because I wasn't a writer involved so I was adapting it for the stage together with a dramaturg and that was a very different process to anything I've ever done um uh working on blank at the Donmar warehouse last year that had its own uh, very particular and specific set of challenges because it was working uh, with a piece of writing that did exist but existed uh, in a sort of uh, in a complete absence of narrative or even sequence so Alice had written a hundred scenes which could be performed in any order by any number of people um, uh, with any sort of doubling and it was up to each individual director or, or creative team to try and assemble a production out of uh, you know an, any number of those hundred scenes so of course you know that that presents its own that sort of determines what your process has to be and where you have to come at it from um, um, and when I'm working on for example a, a, a classical text like a Shakespeare or a, or a Marlowe or a Webster um, then I think it's about uh, for me, always being a little bit more free and easy with structure, um, because uh, um, the this, this, this sort of the structure of many of those texts. I mean, Faustus is a great example. Um, uh, there is no definitive version. You know, there there exists text fragments which scholars have put in one way or another, with uh, more or less academic research to back those decisions up. But the uh, but the structure of what we have inherited 
is already relatively loose. Um, so for me, then it's a process sometimes of investigating that structure and uh, interrogating whether or not it supports the themes that I'm interested in exploring. That's great. And is that the same? Um, obviously, all of those things that you uh, spoke about there are uh, quite uh, weighty bits of work. But is it the same process for you when you're working on something like The Little Shop of Horrors or The Fantastic Mr. Fox? Is there is there any difference? Uh, Little Shop of Horrors was, was quite, quite the exception, <laughs> as one may see when one looks at my CV. Uh, uh, and, I'd, you know, I'd never done a, a proper musical before and I'd never worked in that way before. Um uh, so for that, it was really storyboarding because, it, it, you know, obviously it exists and it, it is a thing in itself and it's incredibly well made and uh, and very reliable structurally. Um, so for that, it was really about about going right to what actually happens beat to beat because you can't, because when you have a structure like that is so uh, tight uh, as, a, as, a, as a musical structure, then you have to just... Uh, make sure you know what you're doing with it and make sure that you can kind of live up to it. So for that, it was a very different kind of prep. So I sat, I sat with um, the, uh, choreographer Lissy G for hours and hours and hours and literally storyboarded uh, um, every single number, every single transition, um, so that when we started rehearsing, we had a really, really clear roadmap of everything that we wanted to achieve. And of course, it changed a little bit along the way, but not in any uh, in any way as much as uh, as much as in a normal rehearsal process. And storyboarding isn't something that I would normally do. Um, so that was that was brilliant for that reason alone, just to kind of go, oh, this is what this is what this project needs. So this is what I'm going to have to do. So, uh, and by storyboarding, you mean literally sitting with pe- with paper and making pictures yeah. so you're exactly. sort of have a very tight control on the visual composition exactly. is that what you mean exactly so we sat and listened yeah. to each of the numbers decided you know this is what needs to happen in these you know 16 bars uh, um before you know this thing happens in the music and then we change the picture and then we do this we literally worked out every number we had a, a, a model box so we sat and worked it out in, in sort of 3D and wrote it all down. Wow. And, uh, and then Lissy would kind of rough up some ideas for choreography and send them to me. And yeah, so it was very detailed. Gosh, that uh, that, sound, that sounds incredible. And um, how, obviously you did that at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. How was working outside? That's a whole different ballgame, right? It was fantastic. It was really fantastic. Yeah, it was a different ballgame, especially when it was as hot as it was that summer. And you're eight months pregnant, which I was at the time. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was, uh, it was intense. <laughs> but I, I really loved it. I mean, the team there is completely brilliant and they are so so good at making musicals <laughs> so I, I you know I always felt really really supported and we were rehearsing in their beautiful new rehearsal rooms that are there you know on site just right next to the theatre so it was a great place to be yeah absolutely I uh, uh I, I think they're they're some of the luckiest people in the world the people that get to go to work there every day yeah. it's such a great place to go to work um and can you um that's brilliant can you talk a little bit about uh, what the first week in the rehearsal room looks like for you uh, when you start working with actors? Sure. I think about five years ago or so, maybe a bit longer, um, the first week inevitably would have been table work and just sitting around and analysing the play and talking about um, you know wants and objectives and super objectives and all the rest of it. Um, and I have increasingly moved away from that, not not uh, moved away from doing it uh, completely, 
but I have moved away from doing it as a starting point. Uh, so what I tend to do now instead, if I can, if I can manage it, it depends on the length of the rehearsal period. But at the RSC, for example, where you have quite generous rehearsal periods, it's always possible. Is that I try and uh, uh, and sort of ring fence the first week of rehearsals as a sort of workshop week. Uh, so uh, that that really means that I try to not. Uh, look too much at the text uh I, we won't have a read through we don't do the model box thing um we might not even do a meet and greet uh, it's a sort of trying to sneak in under the radar of of the pressures of you know day one of rehearsals and whatever to kind of just have a bit of uh um sort of left brain fun exploring the themes of the play so it will be lots of movement work. It might be doing music. It might be um, research things. Um, but it will more often than not be be kind of experimenting and exploring and improvising and doing lots of pretty mad stuff that 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 almost definitely won't end up in the production. Um, having said that, of course, some of the some of the moments in the shows over the last five or ten years that I'm proudest of have come out of that that week of uh, of workshopping just simply because you're sort of not under pressure to make anything that is for the show which is always when the kind of happy accidents happen brilliant and uh can can you give us an example of something that uh that came out of those uh left field first weeks that ended up in ended up in a show yeah so in uh in the Duchess of Malfi for example um um uh, the set design was uh, um had a large amount of blood in it <laughs> uh, and so some of the things that we did in that first week was experimenting with uh with that blood in the rehearsal room um and it was kind of interesting to go uh you know straight into day two when people were kind of hardly remembering each other's names and going yep and now you can just like spit blood on each other and roll around and so that was very that was interesting um but uh, uh but, but of course we already knew that the blood was going to be in the show so so it, it, that was useful for generating a sense of company um but mm-hmm. another thing that we did was we did an improvisation where joan iola who played the duchess um had to lead the group and somehow it evolved into her doing it vocally. And I don't, I can't quite recall what it was now, but eventually she started singing and they started replying and it was completely magical. And that went nearly uh, kind of un- unedited straight into the show. Great. Um, and so can you uh, tell us now, as we uh, come to the end of our conversation, uh, can you tell us a bit about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? Oh, the last work of art that absolutely blew my mind. I mean, there's so much. There's so much. I ha- I've been looking at I've been looking at a lot of dance recently uh, online, mainly given I have small children and hardly ever get to go out. Um, uh, and I've been looking at the work of Crystal Pite, who wasn't really someone that I was massively familiar with. And she's done quite a lot of uh, uh, brilliant work over the last little while, but uh, she's done a piece called um, Betroffenheit, um, which I, uh, um, I'm yet to watch the full thing uh, online, but, um, but it looks absolutely phenomenal. So I'm excited about watching that in, in full. We uh, will try and find a link for that and pop it in the show notes when this uh, episode go, uh, goes out. It's and, on the uh, more you- TV, actually. Sorry, say that again. It's on Marquee TV. 
Excellent. And uh, you may have already covered it, but can you uh, tell us something that we should all enjoy while we're social distancing? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? It goes up and down where you're going, this is really nice. I'm having a lovely time. And you're going, oh, my God, when will this end? Um, so uh, on a good day, I suppose that is uh, um, just enjoying I don't know, just spending more time with your family if that's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing. So that's what I'm trying to enjoy. Um, yes, I mean, I am getting to see a lot more theatre online than I than I have done for a long time. Um, so that's good, you know, catch up on Netflix. <laughs> yes. What's your what's your Netflix pick at the moment? What are you what are you rattling through? Oh God, we, we our guilty pleasure is um, Shit's Creek. Oh, that's hilarious! Isn't yeah. it brilliant? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like it's a sort of yeah, it's a little, little fix at the end of the at the end of the evening. Once you've gone through watching, you know, some serious theatre from the Shabun or whatever, then a quick episode of Shit's yeah. Creek and, and you're good. <laughs> have you been Have you been dabbling with the Shabun online program? I've been really enjoying it. Yes, yes, I've been really enjoying it. I'm switching between that and the Münchner Kammerspiel. I have one that's fantastic and the. Um, National Theatre Sweden have just put some shows online as well. So between those three, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty well taken care of. Excellent stuff. Um, well, there's lots to be going on with there. Uh, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today, Maria. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released. Music